0: Put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. You're listening to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. young or old, professional or amateur. You never miss a day of practice, or perhaps you're coming back to rediscover the joy you once knew playing your trumpet. For those who love and are fascinated with this crazy mass of metal tubing that no one can seem to master, or is at least wise enough to not admit it if they have, this show covers all of the trumpet dynamics. What an honor it is to bring on to the show, John Holt. John Holt is the senior professor of trumpet at the University of North Texas, little-known music school that no one's ever heard of, never produced anything of if any notoriety in the music world. But there, there is John, and he also plays in the Dallas Opera Orchestra. Nice to have you on the show.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this
0: well, the first question I ask everybody, how did you get started on trumpet?
1: Well, my brother played trumpet all throughout school. He's quite a bit older than me. And then when it was time for me to start an instrument, um, my parents wouldn't let me play football or, or, or anything like that. So it was banned or nothing. So I chose the trumpet because we had one in the house already. So that's how I started playing trumpet. And my brother was actually quite good. I just sort of Took his talent, I guess, and what I was given. Kept going with it for a long time now.
0: Have you ever had an extended break from it?
1: Actually, I have. kind of funny. It's a funny story. Well, it's not a funny story, but it's funny now. My parents were ranchers, farmers and ranchers. And the ranch was about, oh, about five miles from where I live right now. (laughs) Now it's a a big housing development in a nature park in Frisco here. I grew up on the family farm all through high school, and then I went to school at the University of Miami. Uh, I never learned how to swim. So my parents thought that um, if you're going to go down to Florida to go to school, you better learn how to swim. So this was uh, my freshman year, summer, to my sophomore year start in college. And they were really adamant about me learning how to swim. So I took swimming lessons that summer after my freshman year in college. And I got really good at it, I really liked it. So I started diving. Oh, wow. I had the high dives. Well, I remember getting out of the pool one day after a dive and felt, hmm, my stomach, hmm, doesn't feel right, I don't huh. know what happened. So I did a few more dives, thought I'd loosen up. The next day, I was like, oh my god, I can hardly breathe. Hmm. And I couldn't play the trumpet, I couldn't like, get a breath, I couldn't breathe. It's like, oh, my God. So I saw my my family doctor was my uncle. So I went to see him, and he said, well, you tore your diaphragm muscle. It's going to take six months to heal. And I was like, no, no. So I didn't believe it. So my parents sent me to all these doctors to get tested and everything, and they spent time in the hospital. I went back to school, but it was pretty apparent that I can't play. So... Mm. I went back home and just did nothing for six months. And then I remember my trumpet teacher called me. That high school trumpet teacher called me at night once, about six, seven months later. And he kind of yelled at me and told me to get your trumpet out and let's play. No, but I can't do it. I can't do it. I was like, I was almost crying and he was yelling at me. And so, okay, I went and got my trumpet and I started to play a little bit. It sounded wretched, but I could do it. I was like, oh, my God, I can play. So I fell in and I started practicing from then on. Hmm. So I took seven months off. And then that's the long – I've never done that again. Well, I didn't have any choice. So I never did that again. I never I never dived again. And I don't actually swim.
0: So you I actually do. you actually injured yourself diving.
1: Yes, I did. Oh, wow. So what I did was I tore the muscles of my diaphragm. Uh-huh. And I was taught to breathe in my diaphragm. A lot of my students, unfortunately, breathe really shallow you know, up in the upper part of their body. And when you do that, you don't get a very good breath. But I was taught to breathe very deeply. And so the, the physical act of breathing, the muscles just weren't, they weren't able to do it. And that's why I couldn't, I couldn't blow. You know, I tested, they said I had emphysema. <laughs> but I didn't have emphysema. I was only, you know, eight, nineteen 19 years old. I didn't have emphysema. I just, my diaphragm had been, it'd been damaged, but it healed. Never had another Extended period where I didn't play. So that was scary. So it was, I was really contemplating, what am I going to do, you know?
0: When you think of that period of time where you couldn't play for six or seven months, uh, just just looking back, do you think that it had any good th- came out of it?
1: Well, you know, once, once I got healed and was able to play, and then it's funny, it didn't take me very long to actually get back into playing pretty well. Then I was really <laughs> focused and I was like, I was more careful with what I did with myself i didn't take un, I didn't take risks mm. that it could be detrimental. like I stopped playing basketball because I didn't want to you know have a basketball mm-hmm. hit me in the chops, so I stopped doing stupid <laughs> stuff like that so I, in, a, in, a, in one way, yeah, it really made me sort of open my eyes about mm. hey if you're going to do this, then you better take care of yourself when
0: you were in University of Miami doing your studies, what was life like in those days, and how was it different from? how trumpet students are taught today?
1: Well, we have a lot more rules we have to follow now, <laughs> faculty and students. This is back in the 70s, where it was kind of a wild time, you know, in school. So there wasn't, we didn't really have any like, um, like friends. I stayed with Gil Johnson, one of the great trumpet players of all time. And he smoked cigars in, in his lessons. And the <laughs> studio was, you know, my office at school is very big. I don't know how big it is, but it's quite large. And the office where Mr. Johnson taught was about half that size. And he smoked cigars the entire day, all day long. <laughs> so, in the lesson. <laughs> so, that's something you can't do now. Obviously, no smoking. <laughs> so, that's I think about that as I kind of smile, you know, about how things are really different. As far as teaching and playing, it's the same. I mean, really? it's, there hasn't been any changes. There's a lot more players now than there were back when I was in school. But there's also, well, until COVID started, there were a lot more opportunities now.
0: What kind of opportunities uh, now didn't exist back then?
1: Well, we have a lot more types of jobs that you can do. For instance, like the way I teach today, I teach trumpet. I don't teach classical trumpet or mm-hmm. because in my era, yeah, I think you could have focused on one aspect, and if you're really good, you could do it. So I was a purely a classical trumpet player. I mean, I enjoyed jazz, I enjoyed listening to it, I couldn't play it at all, but I, I enjoyed it and I respected the jazz musicians, uh, but I didn't play any jazz at all. And today, you can't do that, that, that life doesn't exist anymore. Uh, if you want if you a principal job in a major orchestra, uh, during the pop season, you're expected to play the pop show. So when I would come home in the summer times, and my teacher would take off for the pops, and he would, uh, they would hire you know extra players to play the pop show, and I would get to play a lot of time—not not the principal part, but you know in the section. Uh, today they don't do that; they don't have the budget, and they don't do it. So you, you're expected to play whatever is in front of you. So I teach all my students to play the trumpet. Hmm. Uh, I teach jazz majors. I teach uh, you know music hit majors as well as performance major. So back in my day I think you could you could say I want to be a jazz trumpet player and that's what you did. Or I want to be a commercial trumpet player and that's what you did if you were really fine. Or I want to be a strictly a classical player, yes. That doesn't exist today. You have to be a trumpet player.
0: Yes. So you said that like as far as the teaching technique or teaching pedagogy, very little has changed since you were in school?
1: In my, how I think about it, you know, we teach the way we were taught. And as long as that was successful, we're going to keep doing it that way. So I teach the way I was taught. I don't do a cookie-cutter approach to every student. I mean, in the end result, it it looks like it is, but not everybody's built the same way. So, you know, people are different. They learn differently. Uh, They have things they like to do, things they don't like to do. So what I do is I just... I make sure the concepts are all there, <clears throat> and then the biggest thing I teach, of course, is efficiency. You must be an efficient trumpet player to be successful. If you have any um, problems, you cannot sweep those problems under the rug. You have to deal with those problems. A lot of a lot of students I come across today—they're good players, except they have a few. They have some things that they don't do well, and they've sort of swept those under the rug. But that will that will get you, like you, some players that can't play soft. They can only play mezzo forte and above, and they sound really good. But when they play mezzo piano and below, it's just not there. And we work on you know ways to, to play that. So I don't think that, you know, the old teachers like Gil Johnson studied with Sigmund Heron, and he studied with Sam Kraus. Those teachers still, they, they, it was all about efficiency and fundamentals, and that's what I teach, is efficiency and fundamentals. I don't teach like Gil Johnson would not teach excerpts. Hmm. And I don't teach excerpts only if we're preparing for an audition. Because what I in my philosophy in teaching it, we do a lot of etudes, lots of etudes. And I start out really simple, and we get really really difficult. And the, the, the etudes get longer and longer and harder and harder. And we go for really fine uh, preparation of the etude. In those etudes, the Beach and Charlie. Those types of etudes. If you can play those, there's no excerpt that you cannot play. Petrushka the ballerina dance, considering the hardest excerpt, it's five lines long. <laughs> you know, my students regularly play ten lines, twice as difficulty as the Petrushka excerpt. So when we when we go around to looking at the excerpts, it's just they're just easy. And so then there's not this fear. So we never want to have fear when we when we play something. So we want to be Always overly prepared. So, in my teaching philosophy, we do, in my studio, we teach, I do lots, lots of etudes. And they get tired of them after a while, but I've had a lot of jobs, a lot of students win lots of, and they always uh, thank me for that later.
0: So, you overly prepare, and that takes away the
1: fear? Yes, it takes away the fear. For me, and when I figured that out and I became successful at auditions, I really look forward to auditions. They were fun. It was a chance to catch up with, you know, your colleagues and see what they were doing what were they working on what equipment were they playing and it's funny you know like I, te- I tell my students this you know because it's really intimidating when they're starting up music school because there's so many students i mean UNT is the largest music school in the country that in indiana we have around 100 trumpet majors at, you know of various levels i tell them you know your career you want to th- you want to think like you're climbing a pyramid you start at the bottom and like in high school so many trumpets. We have 140 trumpets in our marching band. <laughs> okay, so there we go. You start with all these trumpet players. Then as you go up the pyramid, it gets smaller and smaller. It goes. Well, some students realize, you know what? This is not for me. or I'm never going to make it. So they switch majors, or they just they tire. And as we get to the top, if you get to the top of your field, it's quite lonely at the top. You know everybody. Everybody knows you. You know you're successful when you get to the point where you know everybody around you, because you're at the top of the pyramid, basically. So that's that's, that's how I talk, talk, uh, teach my students I think. So you're right now in school. You're climbing this pyramid, and the higher you go, the less competition you're going to have as you get there. That way, they don't feel quite as um, you know stressed and scared because it's all about conquering your your fear. Once you conquer your fear. Then you get to be you.
0: I've heard variations of that illustration, and I've also heard that the top, the proverbial top, is a plateau, not a peak.
1: Yeah, probably so, because, uh, like I tell, like in my teaching, you know, the reason that we do the fundamentals and learning how to be as efficient as possible is we don't know how good you're going to be. You don't know how good you're going to be. And there's no top, there's no ceiling. As you learn how to overcome some of your um, deficiencies, who knows how good you're going to be? Yeah, there's no top. You just keep going until you're at a point where, kind of where I'm at right now, I'm not really interested in getting better. <laughs> I'm getting old. I'm in my 60s now, and I'm, my, my career is waning, as it should, in my opinion, because I've done this for 45 years professionally. <laughs> so, you know, you lose some of the edge. You lose some of the desire. I've done a lot of things I'm really proud of. Now it's time to enjoy some of those successes, not in an egotistical way, but just I'm proud of what I've done, trying to help others reach that level of their own creativity. They're right about that. We don't get, all oh, here, now we're done. No there's, no, there's no ceiling. You just go as high as you can go.
0: What I was envisioning is uh, there's this idea that you get to the, quote, top, and there's just a limited number of seats at the table, so to speak. And I think the imagery that I had is you get to the top and there's plenty of space, if you're willing to do the work.
1: And not only is there plenty of space, but the players at the top are very inviting. They're they're proud of where they are, and the ones that are really fine. I mean, really fine. Alan Mazzuti, who I taught with for one year at UNT about six years ago, one of the nicest people I've ever met. met. Probably the, one of the arguably the greatest trumpet player, one of the greatest trumpet players alive right now one of the most humble and nicest persons I've ever met, Um, couldn't be more ingratiating Hmm. to to you as a person. And, you know, you come across a few that are really kind of arrogant. You know, they're, I don't know, those people I find have inner issues. Hmm. So, I mean, we're all just trumpet players. We're all all just trumpet players. You know, we're doing something that's fun.
0: I call it the little pond called trumpet. That's my little phrase for it because even the biggest fish in – the little pond is its still a little pond. I hope you don't mind a quick interruption so that I can tell you a little bit about the show. My name is James Newcomb, as I've already mentioned, and um, I just like doing this show. And I know that a, a lot of you apparently like to press play on it and listen to the shows and, and listen to the, the amazing guests that I'm able to bring on. Now, if you want to be a part of it, if you want to learn more about... The show, if you want to support the show, it's a labor of love. And um, well, there's a lot of love that goes into it. And if you want to show some appreciation, the best thing that you can do is to just look me up on the web, James Newcomb on Trumpet.com. And there's um, a space where you can leave a remark or a comment. Maybe you can leave a, a, a review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to it. And um, I like to interact with people who listen, and uh, something that I'm going to begin doing is read actual reviews and actual feedback from listeners here on the show. So um, if you want to get involved, it really means a lot to us podcasters. It's uh, oftentimes a little bit lonely speaking right into a, a microphone, looking at a a a computer screen as I'm doing right now. And so uh, the best thing that you can do to support the show is to just uh, be present, be active, uh, stop by the website, say hello, and uh, I would love to hear from you. So it's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. There's even a mobile app that you can download onto your smartphone and partake of the many things, the the many episodes that have been produced on the show over the years. So, Trumpet.com, say hello, leave a comment, a review, and I'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get back to the program with Professor John Holt. How is the trumpet like a turtle?
1: Ah, where'd you hear that from?
0: A former student of yours. I said that once at
1: a department, one of our trumpet master classes, kind of called on. It's the old Aesop fable, the turtle and the hare. If you get something really quick, you learn something really fast, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, I can do all this. Yeah, it ain't gonna last. So the trumpet is is the turtle, really slow, methodical progress, and then it'll stay with you. If you learn something incorrectly, but it all of a sudden thinks you, you think it, you got better really quickly, I've seen time and time that always fails. So you learn it wrong. It's not going to stay. You're going to lose it. And then as you get older, then you're going to discover that you should have fixed that. Now it's really hard to fix. Not impossible, but really hard to fix. So we do things very methodically and very intellectually. That's how I teach everything. Slow progress. We don't go from playing Getchel small book, to Charlie A. <laughs> I don't do that. We go very methodically up the ladder of difficulty. So when all of a sudden you're playing you know, all region etudes in high school, and then, okay, it's time to do Charlier now. It's not going to work. You're going to get frustrated, and you're not going to learn You will not have learned it correctly. You're just fighting the losing battle. But then you you work too hard. Work too hard. And then it's just not enjoyable. And a lot of my doctoral students I teach, they have that kind of mentality. I really get on them. No, your students cannot play Charlier. No, they cannot do that. I don't even want them to know what that word means. Okay, so they're not ready for that book. playing it at a high level, but they can't expect their students to play it.
0: When they learn something incorrectly, for example, I guess it catches up to them years down the road, and they realize, oh my goodness, I have to, I have to fix this. But you, you implied that it's very difficult to fix. Is that a physical issue or a psychological issue?
1: Mostly physical.
0: Mostly physical.
1: Most of the time, we use too much pressure. Okay. And especially when we go to play high notes, for instance, or loud, we start to use pressure instead of good air support. And Wazuti told me when he was teaching him, one of the times we had lunch, he said, "When he was at Eastman, his goal every day was to play with less pressure from the day before." What's <laughs> his goal? And when you watch him play trumpet, it's like ah, he's not even trying, or he's trying, but it's just it's effortless. Very few of us can do that. There's a point where we use too much pressure. And that's what I was kind of talking about. When you use too much pressure and you're forcing things down the road, all of a sudden, your armature, your lips, your muscles, they're, they're going to give out. And then it's really, really difficult to fix that. The biggest thing that I see is students, you know, they want to play high. <laughs> they just want to play high. And they're not ready for it. And when they do that, they're not, you know, utilizing good air support and airstream. And they're not using their corners correctly. And then... They're just pressing to get the highness to come out. Over time, that's gonna, you're gonna kill your armature. You know, you it it. It's muscle, and you know, you just overdid it. That's kind of what I teach against, is that. Learning how to play relaxed in the high register. I don't use a lot of pressure, I turn red, it's because I turn red, but this, I'm not pressing. I'm very relaxed, my left hand hand is very relaxed when I'm holding the trumpet, cradling it. I don't grab the trumpet like that, I just hold it. Very, very relaxed. That's efficiency lesson number one.
0: How do you know when someone is ready to go to that next level?
1: When I watch them play, I would also, you know, it's not just a pressure thing. I look at their eyes. They're just so intently focused. They can't see what's out here, you know. That says they're overly concentrated, and they're too focused, and they're not relaxed. So it's not just here. I want the shoulders down. I want them to be relaxed. You know, I want everything to be calm. And then when they're playing... They're not worrying. I don't want them to really concentrate and worry while they play. So talked about fear. Worry is another part of fear. You know, that's another word. That's another word. That's another issue we have is worry. We worry sometimes when we play. And when you worry, you tense up and you get tension in your playing. So we want to make sure we don't worry. So when you're playing something really easy, you're relaxing, you're just playing it. You're just playing, it's easy. It should always everything should be easy. Now, sure, you're going to play some pieces, some things incredibly hard, especially modern things where the composer they did not really know what they're doing and they wrote it anyway because the computer did it. <laughs> okay, that's different. But I'm talking about these etudes that have been, you know, written by the old timers that really knew what they were doing. Their difficulties based on experience, not. Okay, we're going to try something to see if you can play it, even though it's really not playable. Okay, <laughs> that's that's not what I'm talking about. So the Charlie, we like to get, I like to jump from. Uh, I start with Getchel really quickly, and then we'll go to CoProsh. The, the they're written originally written for horn, but they've been adapted for trumpet. Those are really really good a sixty selected studies, and then we'll go to the small book or the Bosquet etudes. Bosquet is out of the Saint-Chicombe. I really like that book a lot, the Bosquet. There's 38 of them, and they're all really good. Now, the problem with some etude books is only half of them are any good, but the ones that I do, they're all really pretty good. And then we start to go higher and higher. We'll do the Aaron Harris. Some of those etudes are really, really good. Advanced studies. Around that area right there is when we'll start to introduce some of the French literature, the Charlier, the Biche, if you can buy the Basquet at a really professional level, where it's easy, then we'll start to look at the French. Of course, Basque is French, <clears throat> but it's just a level of difficulty. Like the Saint-Chicom has characteristic studies, <clears throat> similar to the Arban characteristic studies. Also, in the Saint-Chicom book, he wrote the grand artistic studies. Those are kind of like uh, the Basquet on steroids. They're harder, they're longer. They're two pages each. In the last couple or four pages, I think about an etude that's four pages long. We use the French tradition, is because that's kind of where everything kind of started. To teach at the Paris Conservatory, for instance, like Arban, to teach there, one of the one of the things that you had to do is you had to write your own etude book to teach. That was that was a requirement. You had to write your own etude book. That's why Arbin wrote the book, and all the teachers that taught. At the Paris Conservatory, wrote their own etude books. Saint-Saëns got Forestier, uh, uh They wrote all these books. Some of them are pretty hard to find. You have to go to the library. But um, so that was part of the job requirement: was to write your own etude book. So that's pretty interesting. I guess because there wasn't anything to teach out of, really. So um, that's why we're indebted to those those masters. So. I do introduce the French literature. I just don't start with it. the hardest. I start with it a little bit easier and work up way to the hard.
0: It seems to me like it might be a, a bit of a blow to their ego to be told by their teacher, "No, you're not ready for this." They want to fit in. They want to fit in with the big boys. They want to think of themselves as I'm, I've I've arrived and I'm I'm playing these things and and it's to their detriment. But how do you break it to them? How do you deal with that?
1: I'm very direct, everybody. I tell it like it is. I'm a straight shooter. You know, if you don't play well, I'm going to tell you, okay, you don't play well. I'll be nice about it. And here's what we're going to do to fix it. Now, a lot of students, you know, my, one of my biggest things is when, I'm, when I'm auditioning students and I'm, we're auditioning students for the school, and for my, I always talk to them really candidly and I ask them a question, are you teachable? And then I see how they answer that question. If they... Uh, kind of like skirt around that a little bit or they get real defensive then I know it's not somebody I'm going to be interested in teaching a lot of people don't agree with this but you go to school to get a job I don't think you go to school to get an education you're going to get an education of course but in music school I think you go to school to get a job so they have to be teachable and most of the time they answer I can tell they're answering honestly and you know thoughtfully and I make them do some things in auditions for instance I make them play G major scale two octaves slowly duh slowly and softly. And you'd be surprised how many people can't play low G. And I have, when we do our auditions at the University of North Texas, every student from freshman to doctoral student has to play that G scale. And if you can't play a G scale, I'm it. i will take you.
0: I can see the wisdom in that. If you can't play a low G. You
1: can't play G scale or low G. You'd be surprised how many students getting that. The problem we have, unfortunately, in today's environment, especially in Texas, is that you know the band program is great. Don't get me wrong; it's really really fun. But they're laser driven on like these things, just like you know, contest. It's all about contest, <laughs> and so for them it's all region. So you learn like three scales. <laughs> you know, you learn the G, the B flat, the C, okay, and you learn three etudes for the whole year. <laughs> I mean, it's like oh my! And then that's why I tell my freshmen when they come in, I said, okay, you come from a program where you learn three etudes a year. It's called all region, all state, and you learn your three scales plus your chromatic or whatever. I tell them you're going to learn three etudes a week. That's kind of mind blowing to them, and they. That's why we don't start out real difficult. Now, when we're, now they've been with me for a couple of years. Yeah, they're playing three bossa a week, and they're playing it well. And then you know, I always, I always reminisce. Remember when you came in and um, <laughs> you were playing one etude? And it took you two months to learn one etude. <laughs> you know you got one week so it's a uh, they, they that's how they learn you know then they can do it um but yeah g scale can't play it we're not going to take you because you don't you know you don't have the fundamentals so you you went ahead you jumped ahead that's what i was talking about you jumped ahead before you could actually play something really simple as a g major scale, and it has to be played Mental piano, I don't want to play forte. I want a mental piano because I don't want this to be, like, you know, making up for bad air and all that pressure. I'm listening for a quality of sound. I'm listening for the attack. Each attack on each note has to be, you know, really fine. I mean, I'm going to give them a little bit of leeway, but, you know, a doctoral student, I'm not giving any leeway. I mean, we'd be surprised students come in and they, they can't play low G. They'll take, like, three shots at it.
0: So you have to have, like, a really clean entrance on the low G or you don't take them.
1: Well, the doctoral program at UNT is really demanding. It's really tough. There's no time to fix something, and then okay, we're gonna now we're gonna start the program. There's just no time. It's not fair to it's not fair to the student. It's not that we're trying to penalize them. We have really strong faculty now. We had strong faculty for always, but um, I think we we accepted some players that really sh- we shouldn't have accepted, and they're not in the business right now, which is. Shouldn't accept them to start with. Him. So if I don't think they can make it, also that I, I have to have a really good feeling that they're going to make it to be competitive for a job. That's the one thing about you know our, the music industry is there's no guarantees. You know you're, we're all free agents. All we can do is make it competitive. We can't. Okay, so and so called and now you have got this job. That doesn't exist anymore. Now, when I got my first big break, I was doing my master's at the University of Miami and because of Gil Johnson, you know, he was principal in the Philadelphia Orchestra for 18 years. The conductor of the Machu Musicale Fiorentino in Florence Italy was the former assistant conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. They needed a trumpet player to play. They called Gil Johnson. And Gil Johnson said, i got somebody for you, me.
0: Well, you mentioned Gil Johnson, and uh, you know one of the things I love doing about this show is that I'm always, it seems like every episode I do or in, every interview I do, I'm introduced to someone new, and uh, I, ha- I haven't heard of the guy.
1: Gilbert D. Johnson was principal trumpet in the Philadelphia Orchestra from 1958 to 1976. And he was in an era of time where he introduced this idea of soloistic playing. If you think about the orchestras in the Philadelphia, Chicago, Cleveland. And you look at the brass sections with the principal players in the orchestra. In Philadelphia, they were soloists. They were like soloists. Um, and he was one of the great soloists, let's say, in the orchestra. He did several recordings as a soloist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, the Gabberly recording that they made with Chicago, Philadelphia, Cleveland, brass sections. That won the Grammy back in 1967. Um... His uh, recording of the Hindemith Sonata that they did with the Principal Horn, Principal Trombone, and Principal Trumpet, Gil Johnson. Really interesting recording of the Hindemith Sonatas. He was just a really unique player, a real finesse player, beautiful sound, great lyricism in his playing. If you just can find any brass type piece with the Philadelphia Orchestra in the, with the Columbia, Label it's going to be Gil Johnson playing, and it's it's a unique way of playing. You, nobody play. I tried to play like he was my idol. For instance, I idolized him growing up. My teacher in high school, Richard and uh didn't study with him at Curtis. He studied with Sam Krause, but he was very much aware of Gil Johnson because he got to play with the Philadelphia Orchestra as a student. Richard and did, and he really loved the way uh, Gil Johnson played. and when he retired from Philadelphia. And went to Miami. I just immediately went down there to go to school because I idolized his playing, and uh, it was really interesting to study with him. But um, he was a lyrical player. But the, the other thing that's he's known as is for his lyricism in his playing. But uh, to me, what he's known for is his articulation. His articulation is incredible. It's incredible. He invented, I think, the the light style with hard tongue. Hard tongue, light style. And that's how I play. And that's how I teach. I teach my students to tongue hard, play lightly. It's really a, a unique way of playing. You tongue very hard, but very, in a very light style. That way you never become heady in your articulation. And that's what Gil Johnson did. Uh, he tongue very hard. It was always very light. Neat articulation. Nobody tongue like him before articulated like him before so that's that's who I really emulated and that's who I really think is underrated play like most of my students don't know him either and I have to you know I, I did him. he passed away in 2004 and ITG did a a panel discussion about his life and I was on the panel that discussed his you know his life and uh, and when the, the journal came out that year, there was a four or five page in the article about that and I copied that off and I gave it to all my students so they can read about him because it was a really great great article.
0: What is a I mean you've already mentioned a couple of recordings but if we wanted to check out Gil Johnson what would be the best recording in your opinion?
1: Definitely the Gabrielli recordings. Listen to all the three, you know, brass sections with you know, Bernie Edelstein and Adolf and uh, Gil Johnson, boy, Bernie and, and Bud kind of sound the same. Kind of sound the same. You know, they're very similar. But when Gil Johnson plays, it's like, oh, my, that's something different. Wow. That's eye-opening. So I would definitely listen listen to that. Back in the sev- early 70s, um, Philadelphia Orchestra released the uh, Mahler First Symphony recording. I think it's on RCA Red Seal with the long-lost second movement called the Blue Mean Movement. And that movement... There's a really long trumpet solo in it, beautiful trumpet solo in it, and that's Gil Johnson at his finest, that kind of lyrical playing. And Copland, any of the recordings of Copland, Rodeo, um, El Salon, Mexico, uh, Lincoln Lincoln Portrait, for instance, Um, those recordings, those pieces, with the great trumpet parts of Copland, Really great to listen to. Lincoln Portrait, a wonderful piece. Just great. And Gil Johnson on that recording just sounds amazing. Gil Johnson recorded 800 recordings with the Philadelphia Orchestra. That was the heyday of recordings and orchestras. And he was on 800 of them.
0: 800 recordings? Yeah, some of those were
1: like re-releases and you know, oh. the re- stuff, but still, that's a lot of recordings. I know a funny story about him. that <laughs> He was a character... And they did so many recordings, and uh, he'd see, he told me a couple times that, you know, they'd be recording, and it wouldn't be wouldn't be very good. There'd be some mistakes, and they'd just keep recording, going and get mad. And he would stand up and play a fanfare during the recording session, and they'd have to stop and start over again. So uh, I'm not sure if that's true, but I have heard that a few times. So he told me that, so well, whatever.
0: Well... We have, I, I've just been uh, on the edge of my seat taking this in with uh, Professor John Holt, University of North Texas. We didn't even get into any anything about the Dallas Opera Orchestra. Maybe the stars will, will align and we can we can do a round two someday, talk more about uh, the Dallas Opera. But uh, sadly, we are out of time for this. It was a real pleasure. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day and some stories from your journey as a trumpeter. I took away a lot and I hope that people listening in will enjoy it too. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: Trumpet Dynamics tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. It also tells my own story. Join me on this journey through the world of making music and making life at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. I have blogs, videos, event calendar, and much more. And of course, if you just want to access this great podcast, just remember the URL, trumpetdynamics.com, and you're off to the races. Looking forward to the next time. Be well.